On this uh, um, first week of August 2020, in very interesting and strange times, um, uh, my name is Mushiri here in Nairobi, and I am with Elianida Mutaku. And we're joined today by Irungu Hotan, the Executive Director of Amnesty in Kenya. Um, Karibu, Irungu. Thank you very much. It's a great uh, privilege to be uh, able to talk about something that's really topical and uh, challenging um, at the same time. On, on the next African Agenda, we are looking at uh, conversations. Um, we're having conversations that speak to where we think Africa should be going, the Africa we want. And of course, some of the issues that we really see as necessary to address is the big uh, problem, the big uh, cancer of uh, of corruption that uh, the africa we want can never happen if we are not uh, being responsible with our resources if we're not being accountable if we're not being transparent and if citizens can't exercise their agency um so that's uh, you know we're a big fan of, of amnesty's work uh, and the things you do so i thought maybe uh, to get us started you know you could tell us a little bit about what amnesty is doing in kenya what are the issues that capture your attention and and, and capture your heart Great, thanks, uh, Leo and Mushiri. What um, you know, Amnesty has been around uh, for um, over a decade in Kenya, and we've largely worked on uh, human rights protection. Um, in the last uh, two years, we've been operating under a new strategic plan, and that focus has been right primarily to to really provide the skills and the awareness to citizens to be able to protect themselves from human rights violations, whether it be the the right to health um, or it be um, uh, you know, protection against um, police brutality or forced evictions. And this has really been our, uh, our main focus. As we progressed along the strategic plan, it's become very clear to us that really one of the major drivers that we're not addressing very directly is the issue of corruption. And that corruption is, you know, in many ways, um, responsible for a high percentage of the human rights violations that we see in this country, whether it be in terms of the denial of essential services, many of us are familiar with what the impact is of defrauding a clinic or a hospital with um, uh, the funding that's required to buy drugs or to pay workers. But it less understood uh, is really the corruption that is in the um, uh, police um, service and the law enforcement agencies that either make sure that the wrong people are convicted um, of crimes that they did not do, or that people who do commit crimes are allowed to escape um, simply by paying um, a small level bribe to a police officer or a grand um, bribe to uh, the uh, uh, mandarins in finance and the interior ministry in order to supply uh, either boots that are substandard for our officers or guns that are substandard for our officers. So corruption is a major driver of human rights and we're looking forward to working with about 20, 23,000 accountants and auditors under the auspices of the uh, Institute of Chartered Accountants of Kenya to really, uh, ISPAC, to really begin to change um, our approach to corruption uh, from a very critical constituency, which is auditors and accountants. Yeah, I had, um, and I, I, I saw your, the piece that you did for the nation um, a few months ago 
you know, where you flagged the high risk the pandemic poses uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, existing infrastructure, human and otherwise, uh, to anti-corruption efforts and, and the opportunities it, 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 uh, it provides for um, corrupt actors to, uh, to act. You know, and I, I remember one of the things that you pointed out was that uh, we needed to accelerate the appointment of the Auditor General. Uh, at, le- at least we saw the president um, make make that uh, make that happen. We have we now have an Auditor General. So I, I see, you know, for you auditors, <laughs> general or otherwise, uh, are a big part of, um, of of your strategy going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think you know um, that article was uh, released in the Saturday Standard. I think towards the end of April. And it started off with, um, you know, a point that um, we were all fairly comfortable with, you know, which was that March 13th, the point at which we had our first um, person that tested positive for COVID-19, that we thought that somehow that would change, uh, that had changed the world and that we were living in a new uh, reality. And then, you know, towards the end of April, I think it was uh, the 28th briefing that the Ministry of Health did to the National Assembly, we discovered that there were some real discrepancies and um, shocking inflation um, in the purchasing of essential um, equipment um, or personal protective equipment, but also just simply um, the kind of uh, refreshments and the stationery and the different operational costs that the Ministry of uh, Health were involved with. And, um, uh, you know, that you know that, that moment was, uh, I think, a wake-up call. And looking back at that article now, um, and seeing what has been revealed this week, this very week, in terms of the, um, I guess, the 223 billion shillings that's gone into COVID financing and how 12 companies are now under scrutiny by the Ethics and Anti-Corruption Commission for essentially inflated um, or inflating produce, uh, the cost of uh, products and um, goods that have been supplied to the Ministry of Health. Um, that article was in some ways quite prophetic. I mean, in the article I spoke, um, you know, and I, we, we know from history, not just Kenyan history, but from global corruption history, that um, pandemics fuel, you know, kind of profit um, and also, uh, in, you know, uh, commercial interest in corruption. And um, we knew at that point that, you know, there were cases in Norway where doctors were essentially writing bulk purchases for um, prescriptions for their family and friends. Ugandan traders had begun to stockpile and inflated prices. And we knew that you know, in the case of Cameroon, there were many citizens that were bribing officials either to evade being taken into mandatory quarantine centers or to be placed in quality um, quarantine centers or simply not to go into those quarantine centers at all. Um, so this, um, you know, this global history um, was very much available for the uh, Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Finance and State House and all the uh, oversight institutions to um, inform them that they needed to put in uh, various measures. And, um, you know, I think uh, the thing that struck me a bit was that the five or six recommendations that I made in that article, um, you know, with the exception perhaps of the one that you've mentioned, that the Auditor General was finally, almost after a year uh, of absence, that the Auditor General has been now appointed and is in office. But the other critical um, indicate the other critical recommendations that I made were not acted on, and um, it's it's very clear from the uh, s- scandals that are now being reported daily by the nation, Daily Nation that uh, if they had, we wouldn't be in this position. 
Uh, so it's very interesting that you mentioned that currently the shift in terms of um, what the newspapers are reporting has been, you know, um, centered quite a lot on the inflation of uh, products and goods offered um, to support the fight against this pandemic. Um, so there's been a sort of counterintuitive argument that um, given that goods need to be procured at a very, um, you know, with, with a sense of urgency, um, the supply and demand, um, you know, uh, balance is not there anymore. So, I mean, there's quite a high demand for P PPEs, um, while there's the supply might be limited. So is inflation of prices really justified in that sense, given that, um, you know, generally in economics, when the supply is lower than the demand, then prices tend to go higher? Like, why is that still viewed as a corruption opportunity? So I think we need to separate out what you're um, framing as, as basic principles of economics, which is, you know, uh, supply and demand tension. And I think that that is definitely a legitimate argument uh, for people to make. But I think in this case, mm -hmm. um, there are a number of things that, um, you know, have obviously demonstrated that the um, the, the lapses in procurement uh, policy and our Public Finance Act actually led to a reduction of value for money from the uh, Kenyan taxpayers. Um, so just to give you some examples, you know, I, I spoke about, um, you know, uh, essentially setting up a uh, online portal specifically to um, have companies that are procuring uh, services and goods for our government during this time to be identified and publicly available for people to look at on the uh, internet. I spoke about um, contracts that are being signed with these companies being put in the public domain. And lastly, um, I called for the for a state, you know, an update or a progress a status report to be given to Kenyans on the quality of services being prepared by these countries, by these companies. And the rationale for that was really that, um, you know, uh, government has a responsibility to demonstrate, even in a pandemic, um, but actually particularly in a pandemic, that it's spending its money wisely um, or spending our money wisely. And um, for that reason, you know, an open portal would have made a big difference. Uh, as we've seen with some of these 12 companies, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the names of the, uh, com the company directors are not available. Uh, in some cases, these are shell companies um, and they are essentially fronts uh, for other companies that have taken place. We know that um, members of parliament um, are not yet named, but are, uh, are directors in some of the other companies that are named. Um, and I think there is definitely, uh, you know, a need even during a time of pandemic to deal with issues of insider uh, trading, uh, conflict of interest. These are all basic principles, um, not to uh, restrain the uh, market, but essentially to ensure that uh, the different companies are not having unfair competitive advantage in moments like this. Um, you know, I, I talked about um, in the same way that we set up for um, you know, uh, emergency task forces under the cabinet secretary um, of health, that there was no reason why um, the ministry could not declare also an emergency uh, task force um, that would deal with corruption um, or and an anti-corruption anti strategy task, yeah. with yeah. a bench of very respected anti-corruption whistleblowers and auditors. Mm -hmm. It is really, you know, amazing to me all the time that we... Um, uh, we see a anti-corruption strategy that the, the last group of people that are brought into managing that strategy are the people that we have known 
to have actually blown the whistle on corruption. People like Bernard Mosheri, the internal auditor that was retired fairly soon. First of all, he was transferred from the Ministry of Health and then retired um, after he blew the whistle on the uh, Mafia House scandal back in 2016. Mm. It seems that the government uh, looks um, for whistleblowers and anti-corruption uh, campaigners, um, you know, least or last before they uh, they actually uh, take action. So I think this this was one um, you know strategy that costs uh, the government nothing really in terms of um, setting it up. And these auditors could have been set up and mandated to run regular emergency responses, um, provide uh, internal audits in, and share them in the public domain, much as we are providing uh, public briefings on the number of people who have contracted COVID, the number who have died, and the number of recovered. So I think that would have been the seriousness that I would have expected to see from the Ministry of Health that was just not there. Um, lastly, um, you know, these all these aud internal audit reports um, uh, that the, uh, the bench of auditors uh, would have pulled together, they could have been submitted to the Parliament on a monthly basis uh, and to the Office of the Auditor General um, with clarity on what are the standardized costs for masks, for mm -hmm for um, various um, life-saving equipment uh, that we should be expected. We've now seen that um, uh, we have procured uh, personal protective equipment at way, um, way above, above market. the market yeah. prices that yeah. you and I would, would be able to buy. So I think there are uh, many signs that um, this is not just a question of supply and demand or restricting supply and demand. This was um, an opportunity to allow corruption to, to hunt us alongside COVID. And, and yet I think we have the basic institutional architecture to make such a task force not only effective, but easy to set up, right? We have the Department of Absolutely. Justice in in, in, um, in the AG's office. We have ASCC um, that has proved that it's, you know, um, uh, willing to put its, uh, its, its teeth in the bite. <laughs> and we had, we've had accusations of some of these institutions being toothless, being toothless in the past. Um, we have we have a, a, a DPP, a director of public prosecutions, who seems you know um, quite quite willing to to uh, take things to court. We have uh, a, um, a DCI uh, that that also seems to be willing to take on um, some big names. Um, you know, if you if you add the multi-stakeholder aspect to, uh, to 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 such a task force, um, yeah, I think you'd you'd be ninety five percent there. I mean, I think the first place, and you, you started this uh, conversation really well, you know, the first place is really open data and public information that is publicly um, in, in, you know, in, in available to the, the entire republic. I mean, that, that, that should be the first uh, step towards making sure that there is a deterrent to uh, corruption. But I think where you see an executive that is reluctant to share information with the public, it is reluctant to set up the structures for oversight in real time, then uh, one can only ask whether there is an interest in uh, maintaining an opaqueness that would allow for people to make the profits that are required and then use those profits to pay off the investigators and the prosecutors mm -hmm. uh, so that the, the um, uh, I guess the, they are able to, to do this and get away with this. Um, but I think the first thing is really open data and uh, public information available in the public domain. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that um, you've talked about um, especially opening up data in the form of um, the contracts uh, that have been awarded 
and the beneficiaries of, of these companies that are offering these goods and services. So um, Kenya definitely has been working towards, um, you know, setting up the open contracting portal and the, um, you know, open beneficiary, uh, port the beneficiary owners portal rather, uh, as, as op in, in open formats. However, um, one thing that um, might be noted is that um, the regulations that require contracts to be published in, in the open contracting portal um, right now actually have an, an exception for emergency procurement. But and potentially that could be where the loopholes in, in you know publishing contracts and in opening up data might arise. So um what would you suggest maybe would be an effective way of I mean granted that yes, these are emergency procurements, but um what strategies should these institutions be thinking so that they still remain transparent even as the normal procedures that uh, are in place cannot be followed? So I, I don't believe that they cannot be followed. I think the provision of information is neither costly nor is it a, um, uh, you know, a bureaucratic hassle. It is simply a small technical uh, action that is taken with a group of uh, web designers and that information is available. I think the, in the same way that the um, Cabinet Secretary for Health uh, was able to invoke the Public Health Act to change the behavior of 47.5 million Kenyans, to start wearing masks and to stay at home overnight during a curfew and to stop movement of many people from and forth across the country. Um, there was no reason if there was, uh, you know, if there was political will in this area to just declare that um, those contracts would have to be put in the public domain. Um, and it is particularly because funding is scarce. We know that the um, universal health coverage program has uh, failed to be rolled out across the country. Uh, counties are insufficiently prepared to be able to take on this uh, pandemic and for those reasons in order to keep people safe we are essentially making sure that every shilling that is procured is value for money and is seen to be public uh, to seem to be valid for money in the public eye and that would have been a very simple action so i don't believe that um this uh you know precaution or this this uh element of keeping contracts um secret um in particularly the time of a pandemic um, uh, really, uh, you know, inspires me that it was in the public interest. I think it has to be only in the cartel interest uh, at this time. And I think it's definitely a matter of leadership at uh, at the top. Like you say, you know, taking advantage of whatever instruments you have at hand uh, to get the job done. Uh, I don't know if you if you saw Makweni County. Now that if you've mentioned counties, I, I think counties have an opportunity to demonstrate a really advanced level of leadership and ambition on these things. Um, last year, Makwini County launched an open contracting uh, portal. They have a, you know, like a proper full open contracting framework, um, you know, with, with the actual actions that are done by the procurement officers um, all the way to, to the portal online that, you know, has uh, complies to open contracting data standards. It's, it's a beautiful thing to behold because you get in there and you can see every contract, um, but not just a contract. You, you can you can see from the very beginning the requisition uh, that came, you know, for the request for the service of goods um, or, or construction or whatever it was, all the way to the tender, the bids, uh, the award letter, um, and the disbursement. And it's all it's it's all there. It's just uh, the 
they have 195. I'm taking a quick look now. 195 contracts there with a total contract amount of about 1.1 billion. Uh, so I figure that they are still also in the very early stages of of getting this thing to move. Uh, it's I think I think it's the kind of thing that we would have wanted to see with, with PPIP with a public procurement uh, portal. So like you say, we, we already yeah. have, you know, some of the basic infrastructure. Uh, you know, putting some of this information up there on a portal may not have required, you know, huge amount of new investments. It's probably um, bringing that ambition to existing efforts like like the public procurement portal, where you know there's already a requirement for uh, for uh, procuring entities to publish uh, their data. So, so I think I think we have to interrogate as citizens this concept of the lack of political will. There was political will. Uh, set up and enforce it. There was political will to uh, stop movement between counties. There was political will to have 47.5 million Kenyans wearing masks um, and change their public behavior. Um, the question we have to ask is why was there not political will to put in place the measures that would keep public finance safe at this time? Um, we now know that there are 12 companies that um, have been handling billions of shillings and that in some of the cases, of those uh, transactions, uh, we received goods that were grossly inflated. Um, there was hoarding that took place to allow for the market prices to increase and for these to be released to the public. These are classic pandemic profiteering strategies. Um, anybody who Googles pandemic profiteering will get a list of about five or six. And that's what I did um, before I wrote the article back at the end of April. So. Um, one assumes that auditors, uh, accountants, and um, policymakers in the different ministries have the same internet that we as citizens have, and why they did not take um, those measures to ensure that this would be the case. Why is it that we have a raft of executive orders by the presidency uh, calling for information to be disclosed in uh, the public domain and also beneficiary ownership to be essentially investigated and clarified and confirmed or verified prior to giving contracts to companies. Um, so the question is, is really not, um, uh, it, it can't really stop at political will. We have to start asking whether there is private interest mm -hmm. involved in overlooking um, and not acting with the political will that would be responsible at this time. And I think the question we need to ask is if we have said, if the president has said many times that officials, uh, state officers will be held personally liable and surcharged for the um, inflation uh, that is, uh, you know, is found to have happened um, in the procurement of services and goods. Um, uh, the question we need to ask is not only will they be surcharged for these for this inflation, but secondly, would the top three uh, state officers in the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Finance and in any other ministry involved in these procurements, will they be asked to uh, resign and face? Um, uh, uh, criminal proceedings for perhaps um, overseeing a uh, diversion of public money into private hands at this point. Um, will they step aside also for this to happen? That's a really interesting um, take on that. And one thing that you've mentioned is that we also have to understand that these opportunities for corruption are actually impacting, you know, people's lives, especially at the grassroots levels, the health officers who are not getting the protective equipment that they need, um, the 
uh, patients who need critical care, but you know, due to corruption, may not be able to get access to ventilators on time or to an ICU bed. Um, when we start thinking about these other uh, effects of corruption um, that are beyond just the actual procurement and the beneficial uh, ownership of uh, the companies that are receiving these contracts, uh, where else do you see an opportunity for transparency and, and more so opening up data so that we can ensure that the right resources are reaching people at the right time? So, so the surest way of ensuring that the, pro, the procurement um, cycle has, in, has integrity is really end-to-end -end, uh, documentation and allow that to be in the public domain so that people can essentially see where did the money that was put aside for face masks, for health workers, where did it actually end up? Um, how much um, or how many face masks were delivered to Kenyatta National Hospital? How many went to Bagathi? How many went to the mandatory quarantine centers that were set up to protect our people and to isolate them during the time uh, that they needed to take in order not to infect uh, their loved ones and their, their people? And if you don't put that in the public domain, um, then it is completely impossible to be able to track that. And I think that's what the cartels essentially thrive off. They know that this information will not be delivered in the public domain. So when the Kenya Medical and Practitioners and Dentists Union uh, demand um, uh, explanations on where did the uh, uh, the funding for uh, face masks and face masks and has mask um, uh, suit where did that uh, money go to what they're essentially asking is that these supplies were delivered um, to the uh, front line of our work when police uh, officers individually ask um, for face masks and they individually ask um, why they are receiving a uh, one face mask per week rather than the required uh, number of face masks that they need to run 12 hour duty shifts. Um, this is the kind of information that's required uh, to also be put in the public domain. So it's not just the contracts um, and the bill of lading and the delivery uh, notes. It's also about, you know, on the ground, core ground, are we seeing these um, supplies and goods um, reaching uh, the, where they should be? And I think that's the uh, the auditing that needs to be put in the public domain as well. You make a very good point. I was just remembering uh, that Kenya in, in the third uh, National Action Plan, uh, which is uh, now coming to an end this year, there were a couple of commitments there that if, if we had done them well, I think would have served us extremely well under this, uh, this pandemic times. One was the uh, commitment on beneficial ownership. Yeah, which um, to give to give the uh, you know credit where it's due, the, the AG's office uh, moved really fast on on that. They've been very very engaged, uh, and I think the last time I checked, the, the regulations you know are are working their way through the system. The beneficial ownership regulations are working their way through the system. Uh, we still wait to see whether we, we shall have you know. Um, 90, 100% of the kind of regulations we want or we'll have to make trade-offs and make do with whatever we get. Uh, but you know, at least we can see those coming. And I think the beneficial ownership issue would have been extremely important now when you have public contracts being put out, distribution of uh, resources being done, you know, for, for us to see who, who are the people, who are the individuals, who are the faceless um, uh, entities that are on the other side of, of that. 
And the other one was the open contracting um, commitment, which would have brought that level of, of contracting that Makweni have done you know, by themselves, without a national order, without a new treaty. You know, um, and they've gone ahead and done something like that. It would have been possible to do that now um, at the level of Treasury with the PPRA uh, for every single public contract. Uh, that didn't quite take, um, at least not at the speed that we had hoped it would. So it, it's clear that those two regulations I and mean, those two commitments might end up rolling over into the next action plan. You know, so 2021, 2023. Yeah. You know, might see an action plan that that tries to address those, those kinds of things, um, but now when you think about the service delivery level of transparency and accountability, uh, which may not necessarily be items that fit neatly into a contracting platform, you know, I think this is where you start seeing, you know, where the next level of ambition um, could be demonstrated uh, on 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 addressing anti- addressing corruption with, you know, open data and transparency. You know that goes beyond contracting, like you're talking about. So the the action plans may may provide us, I think, with a very good place to start. Mm-hmm. That maybe in the next in the next round, you know, we shall see some some entities at the table, like Ministry of Health, coming to the table um, with proposed commitments to make, in which they can accelerate, um, you know, progress on on on, on not just uh, you know cosmetic things like putting up a. Because I, th- I think in some in some instances putting up a portal can be fairly cosmetic, but you need to follow it up with the teeth, the sanctioning, um, the surcharging, the the prosecution, and, and all that I think would be an ideal thing to see in the next action plan. Something that I note is that in the current action plan, there's also the open geo, um, you know, uh, commitment that. Uh, proposes opening up geospatial data, especially to support resource allocation. And now once we start talking about, for instance, in the case of um, allocation of this um, pandemic response um, resources and who has access to which facilities at what point, that would also have been a very interesting um, data set to capitalize on, to understand that this is what the population looks like at a certain place. You layer it on top of you know, infrastructure data that that's coming from this um, geospatial portal. And, and then you easily start seeing where the inequalities in distribution and likelihood uh, of impacts from the corruption taking place um, is more severe than in other places. And I think that was part of the ambition behind the, the, the idea of the, of the spatial plans, the county spatial plans. Uh, because with that infrastructure, you get to see where resources are vis-a-vis where people are. Exactly. Uh, you know, so if you are to take you know resources such as water, you know that would be one thing. Uh, but if you take you know resources such as PPEs, hmm. um, resources such as quarantine centers, ICU beds, mm-hmm. you know you get to see you know whether there is um, an injustice being perpetuated in. In uh, in the in the distribution and the access to services to you know like rights to health, uh, which uh, right now is extremely difficult to to tell. I, I, I mean I think there are a number of um, things that we will learn from the pan- pandemic. I think um, it's obviously we haven't got it right, and uh, there are some interests that are making for special interests that are making sure we don't get it right. The obvious question is if you can't fix this during a pandemic will you fix it during regular um, times? And um, 
I think what's needed really is is to bring the sharpness of the the cost of um, pandemic profiteering, uh, and just asking, you know, if if not now, when? when? I mean, when when would this when would this matter? You know, um, with 500 health workers um, currently grappling with the symptoms of COVID-19, and uh, six having died already, um, when will this when will this matter? I mean, at, at what point when? Will this become clearer to the public uh, enough to make enough of an outcry and a demand for a government that is accountable to, to the public? I think the, the other um, aspect uh, that we've been watching quite closely is which um, health data and surveillance um, does not uh, go, I guess, to an excessive uh, level so that um, all the information that has been used uh, to track initially to uh, contact trace um, uh, people who um, have potentially been infected by persons who've turned out to be positive, that that data is not um, stored or sold uh, to commercial companies or used mm -hmm. in, a, in a manner in which um, the people's, people whose data has been collected would not want. Um, and uh, I think that's the other conversation around um, how do you manage open data in a way in which the right to privacy is not undermined or um, uh, commercialized without uh, prior and informed consent uh, by data owners. Um, so it's, it's an interesting uh, time, even from that perspective, uh, particularly given that we're um, a year into the Data Protection Act. Um, uh, and although we've not managed to secure a data protection commissioner, uh, and the office is not up, set up yet, but um, we are essentially uh, moving into a new um, interesting domain of, of policy around of information and the right to privacy and open data. Yeah, it's quite interesting that the the actual acts has a specific provision about how to treat health data, but I think that provision only becomes, um, you know, enforceable with the right regulations because yes, there's um, the bounds in which health um, specific data should be used, but um, what are the excesses as you're saying? When does it now cross into surveillance or other untowardly, you know, uses of, of personal information? There will definitely need a, a lot more enforcement um, in, in the form of regulations. So six, six years ago, I think, or five years ago, um, while I was working at the Society of International Development, um, uh, and I don't know if you remember that famous um, scene at State House where uh, during one of the governance um, uh, summits, um, we had the spectacle of different law enforcement, heads of law enforcement agencies, uh, essentially passing the buck uh, to each other. So it was either the jury had failed or it was the, uh, the investigators had failed or it was the director for public prosecutions who had failed or it was the executive of failed. And um, I remember going back to the office really perplexed by this level of um, irresponsibility. And I uh, asked a, a lawyer to draw up a um, hundred ways that you can evade uh, criminal justice uh, while committing an economic crime. Mm -hmm. And he came up with about six, 66 um, uh, ways that you could do this. Um, and we took the 66 and got an artist to generate a book um, uh, of cartoons and just made light of it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, everybody falls sick. Uh, that's one. Um, uh, usually in, in, in rapid succession of each other, nobody's sick at the same time, but mm -hmm. people are sick sufficiently um, in sequence enough to make sure that the, the crime, uh, the case 
can take four to ten years mm-hmm. yeah. um, and there are many others um, it seems to me that we're at a juncture really where we should be doing another um, a book like that which is a hundred ways to avoid um, open um, open government open government and um, uh, public procurement that is kept within the public eye um, and one of them will be this one which is uh, take a year to appoint a commissioner of data protection <laughs> or take uh, a year to, to appoint the auditor general and then just said you know it's just the vagaries of recruitment uh, that have kept us without such an important person for this period um, so I think you know delays in appointments delays in uh, regulations delays in um, uh, uh, criminal cases stabbing uh, stabbing uh, important yeah. institutions of uh, you know Absolutely. resources you know, um, you know defunding institutions mm-hmm. these are all ways in which you make sure that you prolong this and you know cartels work within a very finite uh, time they are extremely organized I, I once sat um, at Karen Country Club and uh, what started off as um, a couple of glasses of wine really ten- turned out to be a a very illuminating conversation for me where I met somebody who said to me, actually, I was introduced to somebody who was sitting across the table with me as um, somebody who is the poster child for corruption. And I said, you mean poster child for corruption or anti-corruption? And they said, no, no, corruption. You heard what I said. <laughs> and then I said, well, why are you called the poster child for corruption? And it turned out that this was somebody who had set up a company um, uh, with her 17-year-old son, um, so a minor, um, and that company had got a contract to supply energy um, equipment to the uh, to the Ministry of Energy, and uh, had got caught essentially supplying air, not equipment, um, and then was inducted into the world of how to avoid being um, uh, convicted of an economic crime. And let me tell you, in in less than forty minutes, um, I had a tutorial on how this works. Um, and it is everything from managing the media um, mm. and managing court clerks to managing the judiciary or the judge that is managing uh, is, is overseeing the case to managing the witnesses and uh, the auditors that are brought in to testify. It is a very complex and simple ecosystem that uh, takes place to keep somebody out of a conviction. Um, down to, for example, which courtrooms in the high court have CCTV camera, which ones don't. I was given all this information. I was told if you want to pay the auditor, uh, sorry, the editors in the media houses not to have your story uh, carried, uh, this is the person you speak to, um, and it will cost you 50,000 shillings per editor. But if you want to spike the story at the level of the journalist, it is only 10,000 shillings per journalist. And there are brokers, people who have no law degree, they have no uh, expertise and uh, qualifications in the area of crime management, um, but they can very efficiently manage everything for you at a single cost. And uh, the higher you go up, um, the more you have to pay for the brokers uh, to manage the courts, the media, um, and uh, witnesses as well. It's actually become an industrial so, complex. <laughs> in, in fact, that's, that's probably the best way to put it. Uh, it's unbelievable. Is a, uh, economic industry, <laughs> industrial complex. We we have um, uh, you know uh, we have no shortage of of paper you know to help address corruption um, at the UN level. Kenya is part of ANCAC, the UN Convention on Anti-Corruption. 
Um, this is African Convention on Anti-Corruption. We have the Constitution of Kenya 2010. We have, you know, various laws and, and places, you know, and then we have all these other mechanisms like OGP and APRM that, you know, bring innovation, multi-stakeholderism, peer review, etc., etc. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what, you know, we have all these things in in place, you know, and yet we are we're still, you know, struggling on a on a day to day basis. I'm wondering how, you know, how can how can civil society, you know, and and uh, and you know other actors, whether it's academia or private sector, etc., um, you know, take take advantage of 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 this to galvanize action. I think there are a number of um, opportunities always. I think, you know, the, the pandemic, uh, sad as it is, gives us a moment where there is a singular focus uh, in the public and every really matters. Uh, so I think that, that's the first thing. The second thing is really to continue to say that, um, you know, corruption, whether it is in a pandemic or not, um, is not normal. It is not normal for um, state officers or public officers to privatize public finance and essentially rob our exchequer of the resources required to develop our country and to keep us safe. I think it's important to point out that there is a human rights cost to corruption. Um, there are names and lives that are attached to every shilling that is diverted into private um, pockets that is unlawfully done, you know, unlawfully uh, uh, done um, or unlawfully uh, uh, procured. Um, so the, these, I think, are the, the messages that need to keep being reinforced publicly. I think one of the things that I learned from that uh, very strange conversation a few years back was um, how confident cartels are that they can buy people, that they can normalize corruption, and that they can ensure that nobody takes action. In fact, just accept that there is a gravy train. And the only problem we have with it is that we don't have the tools to be able to, or the, uh, the access to that gravy train. Um, and I think that's that's the uh, the most important thing. The third, the fourth, and the fifth is really the, like you say. There are laws, there are procedures, there are policies, there are institutions that uh, have been set up to to essentially protect us, um, and that we have to continue to protect those institutions and uh, ensure that they're not defunded, that they are not terrorized, they are not um, uh, de. Um, I guess uh, that the, their credibility and legitimacy is not destroyed in the public eye because there is nothing powerful that will come from an investigator or a prosecutor that feels that they do not have the public uh, behind them, that there is no political support. Mm -hmm. And if that political support is not coming from the executive, it has to come from citizens and from civic organizations and for those business uh, companies that um, see themselves as essentially building this country rather than simply stripping this country, that those business companies also invest in, in this protection. And this is the reason why uh, Amnesty is now uh, having this program with the um, ISPAC um, uh, accounting you know, the, uh, institute and also the accountancy profession, because we do have to reach out to um, accountants and auditors because right there where the money is being diverted. And uh, in many cases, I've often argued that for every corruption scandal, there are 10 people who kept quiet, who saw what was happening and kept quiet. Um, one of them was not uh, Spencer um, Sankale, the, uh, the, one of the four whistleblowers at the Masai Mara University, who, um, who 
essentially uh, documented very carefully the uh, pillaging of 900 million shillings from the university by the uh, vice chancellor and uh, finance officer yeah. and her driver and essentially took the decision that um, it would be ethically immoral of him to just watch this happening uh, rather than putting this in the public domain and it is one of our greatest uh, scandal um, uh, stories uh, of 2019 mm -hmm. and it's for that reason the Transparency International gave him the um, Integrity of the Year Award uh, for 2019. Yeah, I remember that amazing, amazing gentleman uh, at, at personal risk. Really? You know, he, he went out of his way to, to, um, to do this. Um, I mean, it's really interesting that um, uh, you you mentioned the role of, um, you know, the civil society raising their voices. But I think it's also important for them to find ways to, you know, either galvanize action, either by finding themselves in the right spaces. I know you mentioned about, um, you know, there's all these emergency task forces that have been set up. And many of them are private uh, public partnerships. Um, there's representation from private sector, there's representation from the public sector, but is there representation from civil society? How do we keep um, even at the task force level um, uh, up, uh, a participation representative and, and keep um, all these ongoing efforts transparent and accountable to citizens. I think, the, uh, I don't know if you have any suggestions of how civil society can find their way in, into these spaces that are being carved out to really support the pandemic response. I think there are four things that civic, civic organizations, I use the word civic organizations rather than NGOs anymore, because I think there are more there are some, you know, there's some more interesting things happening outside of the uh, NGO model mm -hmm. um, that we can harness, and um, it's critical to do that. I think, you know, I think there are four things that can be done. One is, of course, I think, you know, there, there needs to be specialization. Um, there needs to be a singular focus that is brought to specific areas of work uh, so that you can generate the kind of detail um, uh, that is required to either stop corruption or to, to preempt it. And um, I think that's the first thing. The second thing really is courage and um, uh, courage of conviction that this really is the red line between a country that um, has integrity and is developing and a country that is one of impunity and um, essentially um, the cartels have taken over. Um, I think courage of conviction is the second uh, area. And the third, I think, is alliances. Um, uh, alliances within the state, alliances with non-state actors, but essentially at very individual levels, um, relationships with uh, people that are uh, able to cross-triangulate um, cross uh, or to triangulate the information that's required to get uh, reliable data and reliable information in the hands of prosecutors um, so that the actions can, can take place. And moments really matter. I mean, timing is decisive in this, uh, in this context. Yeah. Um, one of the things I heard about the uh, Masai Mara case was that it was the confidence uh, that they had with the director of criminal investigations and the director of public prosecutions um, that led them to make the act, take the action that they, they did. Um, the corruption had been around for more than five or six years, um, but it was really in that moment that they felt that they had um, people in the state machinery that would take action accordingly. So, it's important to understand those moments carefully and uh, ensure that you are blowing the whistle in a safe in a safe manner. And the last one really is is this: is um, it is not uh, coincidental 
that um, you know government task forces are uh, bereft of people who are critical, people who are um, courageous, people who are willing to call out uh, the state in very clear um, in a very clear manner. There is a reason why Spencer Sakale doesn't have a, um, a presidential commendation at the end of 2019, mm -hmm. but he does have a Transparency International Integrity of the Year Award. There is a reason why, you know, many of my colleagues, me included, uh, who have, um, you know, followed the issues of corruption and uh, are not um, commended by the state. Uh, we, you know, we are not, Sam Kimeo was not shortlisted uh, for the position of the Auditor General. He was shortlisted for the um, position of the, um, uh, uh, of the Ethics and Anti-Corruption uh, Commission despite a decade or more of very solid uh, research, investigative, and uh, advocacy on the issue of corruption. Um, and until a leadership emerges, a political leadership emerges, that says that we trust um, our critics um, enough to give them the space uh, to have a seat at the table uh, during the task forces that are set up ostensibly to protect public money. Until that leadership shows off, this work will have to be done from the outside. Um, uh, just to, to say something else, I on March the 25th, I made a very direct request to extremely powerful um, uh, um, uh, ministry officials um, that they open up the task forces to civil society organizations. I request that uh, humanitarian organizations, um, that they be invited into the uh, National Emergency Response Fund mm -hmm. to be able to support with the distribution of food relief uh, that was denied um, or ignored. I made a request that um, in um, and uh, human rights organizations be invited into the security uh, task forces that were being set up to manage curfew. Mm -hmm. That was ignored. Um, now, I, I don't want to speculate, nor do I want to get into a conspiratorial mind uh, officials, why these um, requests are just not responded to, um, but yet um, others are in the task forces um, and uh, uh, may not, uh, and many of those people don't have a track record of critical independent oversight uh, capacity. So this has been a, a really uh, fascinating speaking with, with you on, on the work that you've been doing and your views um, on, on, uh, on where we should go, what we should do going forward. Uh, for the Africa we want to be a reality, uh, we do need to bring you know, citizens to the front. Uh, we do need to bring um, a civic voices, civic institutions, as you call them, into these um, spaces that have now been created as part of pandemic response. And eventually, I think we'll, it will remain as part of pandemic recovery as well. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that some of your recommendations make their way, uh, if they haven't already done, make their way to the right, the right places in government. Uh, and if they have, that they are acted on. Because I think they are, in many ways, the right thing to do. Uh, and in some ways, not rocket science at all. I mean, I interviewed, I've interviewed um, a number of whistleblowers over the years, and um, I ask, uh, I always ask this question, which is, um, you know, what, um, what motivated you, you know, and um, there's usually three responses, and the first is love of God, 
Um, the second is love of country. And the third is a personal, ethical um, sense of integrity um, that um, they did not uh, train as professionals, as uh, auditors or accountants or as police officers, essentially to steal money from mm. uh, other Kenyans. That, that's uh, what comes through. Um, you know, very regularly in the interview with uh, whistleblowers. And for that reason, I'm always confident that, um, you know, there may be nine people who will keep silent about a corruption scandal, but there will be one or two um, that will speak out. And I think my parting shot really in this period really is that, um, you know, Kenya faces two C viruses. The first is corruption. The second is COVID-19. And um, the first one is much older and it has killed many, many more people than COVID-19. Um, and it will be around after we flatten uh, the, the virus. And therefore, uh, this is just a moment where we um, are left present to the, 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 this, this hunting pack of uh, COVID and um, corruption, and that they will hunt us together if we are not able to um, disentangle um, both of them. Yes, and dismantle the architecture that drives them. At the bio level, Absolutely. at the biotechnical level, or at the, I don't know, what would be the, the, the equivalent of bio, of bio and life science on the anti-corruption side? Yeah. Institutional, right? Institutional. Yeah. Institutional. And, yeah. and, and I mean, I can't, find a, I can't find a better way to, you know, wrap this conversation. Um, we, we've discussed how to get the right tools in our hands, um, opening up data that will support, provide the evidence that we can use when we speak up. And I really do hope um, that, uh, I mean, in as much as we, uh, the corruption uh, disease has been there longer, that we still find, uh, you know, new ways to inspire ourselves out of, out of these and, and to just keep the fight. Um, we, we, we can't stop just because we're in a pandemic. So we've been talking to Irungu Houghton, Executive Director, Amnesty International, um, magician, rock star, uh, world changer. Uh, this is the part where applause is, is hard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you for having us. Uh, thank you for being with us and, and having this conversation. And we look forward uh, to uh, you know uh, engaging more. Um, and also looking forward to Amnesty at the next OGP you know action plan. We need we need to we need to bring an ambitious, uh, real, actionable uh, plan that helps us address you know this. Uh, two C's in really substantive ways. So once again, thank you. Thank you very much um, for the conversation. And uh, let's hope that it inspires people to go out there and expose corruption, um, to document it, to act on it, and essentially give our uh, prosecutors and our investigators the kind of information that they need to keep uh, people safe from uh, pandemic profiteering. And after we've commissioned uh, Corona, let's commission um, Ufisadi as well.